1 Corinthians 15 is where we're at. 1 Corinthians 15, and the title of our message is The Greatest Reversal, Part 2. We're looking at verses 20 through 28. Last week, we talked about um, how it's impossible to be a Christian and deny the resurrection. We saw that what verse 14 said, that your preaching would be in vain and your faith would be in vain. We saw preaching would be pointless, believers would be profitless, apostles would be phonies, forgiveness would be powerless, and the dead would be perished, and Christians should be pitied. When we come to verses 20 through 28 of 1 Corinthians 15, please follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Well, the, as we look at this passage, um, we think about the life that we live as Christians and how we do have hope and how we have hope because of the resurrection. And we've been talking about celebrating in the resurrection, not only every day, but every week, especially as we meet on the Lord's Day. We meet because this is the day that our Lord rose from the grave. And because Christ did rise from the grave, we have several details about the resurrection that, that really encourage us to have great hope. Last week, we looked at what the world would look like without a resurrection, and it would be hopeless for the church. And yet, this section begins with a conjunction with the word but, but Christ has been raised. Perfect tense there, has been raised, emphasis being on the continued action afterwards. He is alive, but Christ is alive. And so, as we look to our our passage, we're going to jump right in, and we're going to see two details about God's resurrection plan that gives us great hope and motivates us in this life to live hopeful, holy lives. So the first detail is the implication of the resurrection, the implication, verses 20 through 22, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And he gives some illustrations. The implication of the resurrection is that there will be more. There will be more resurrections because we believe in bodily resurrection, which is what the Corinthians had been struggling with, some of them obviously influenced probably by Greek philosophy. Uh, We don't know for sure, but in verse 12, it makes clear that some were teaching or saying that there was no such thing as a resurrection. And Paul makes it clear, you can't be a Christian and say that. You, You believe this. You know this to be true because you believe in Christ's resurrection. And now he gets into this section here where he says, because of Christ's resurrection, there is an implication, and that is it's not the only one. There are more to come. And he gives two illustrations here, one of first fruits and one of Adam. The first fruits of those who are asleep, verse 20. First fruits uh, is a a great principle. It's one that we've kind of lost in our day and age in many ways because when you farm uh, today, the farmers, it's very commercial and they get their crops in, in, in antiquity and in rural areas today. When we lived in Malawi, people were dependent on the early rains to soften up the ground. As soon as those rains hit, they would go out there, right, Prince? Yeah. And then they would be boom with their hoe, and they would till the fields, get those furrows all, all there, and plant their crops. But it would take days and weeks to plant. 
depending on how big your field was. And so, whereas today, uh, you've got, you know, big combines that come through, and, uh, oh, those are the harvesters. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. So they, uh, uh, you've got all kinds of uh, big uh, you know, tractors that come through, and, and, and then they've got planters, and a lot of it's uh, mechanized. So you see these huge fields, and they're all planted at the same time. But you can imagine the land of Palestine, um, when it was all done by hand, and then it's coming to harvest in stages. And so the, the part that was planted first sprouts up first and produces its fruit first, while the other is still coming, is still growing, and is not ready to be harvested. And so that section is the first fruits. And in Leviticus 23, they were to bring that, uh, their first fruits as an offering. But there were, it was symbolic. It was, I mean, you got excited when you wanted to go see what the first fruits were because you could actually see what the rest of the crops would look like that year. It was also a bit of trust involved in the Levitical system, in the sacrificial system, when you, when you offered your first fruits of your crops because uh, you, were, you were trusting that there would be more. And so Paul calls upon this imagery of a farmer who sees what his crops will be like, and this is going to be the best year ever because it was dead and it's alive. And it was Christ who was dead, and now he's alive, but he's only the first fruit. And there's, there's imagery in there about sacrifice, and Christ is the first fruit of many more resurrections to come. This is his point. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those, first fruits of those who are asleep. We talked about that euphemism asleep. It means died. The Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. The Bible teaches that uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second uh, Corinthians teaches that. And so we have this idea, and Philippians teaches that uh, we have uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so there is immediate gain and glory and with the Lord for your spirit. And yet, what the Bible talks about is that bodies, physical bodies, will be resurrected, glorified, heavenly bodies that will be resurrected, joined to your spirit, and uh, like Christ was in the grave for three days and three nights, his spirit not only was raised uh, and, and very much alive, but his body was raised, and it is the first fruits of those to come. Verse 21 and 22 uh, talk about Adam, another illustration here of the implication, and that is that we have uh, Adam, uh, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So, he begins by saying, for since by a man came death. And his point here is simply that one person can have a huge impact on many other people. And for example, Adam, uh, he sinned and it resulted in physical death. And for many, it results in eternal damnation. In Romans 5, uh, he spends much of the chapter speaking about Adam and comparing Adam and sin and to Christ and how Adam affected everyone through Christ through sin, but Christ affects those who believe. Uh, Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we have this principle of original sin that is uh, transferred down through every generation. God could have killed Adam and Eve the moment that they sinned, and yet they started dying at that point, but they still lived each day by grace. They, by His grace, He allowed them to live so that they could have children. But those children who were born were born sinners. They were inherently sinful, and that's transferred down to every person. You are a sinner not when you commit your first sin. You commit sin because you are a sinner. And so, uh, and, and, and 
If you have children, you've witnessed it firsthand. That you don't have to teach your kids to sin. You don't have to teach them to do better at lying. or They get better naturally. It's like a duck to water. We all do it. It's all, the older we get, the better we are at trying to conceal our sin. Young kid, you don't have to say to them, you know, hey, listen, next time when you say you haven't had any chocolate cake, you really should probably wipe the frosting off your face, face before you say that because it's a dead giveaway, right? They pick up on that, and then, and then it just transfers over to other things older in life, and that's our nature. And because of that, uh, the Bible teaches eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says. Ezekiel 18.4, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But by man, it says in verse uh, 21, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And so we have, because of Christ, we have this idea that there, is, there will be more who will be raised. Sometimes people get hung up on the word all there because every human being is actually... Um, affected because of Adam's sin, but not every human being will be raised to eternal life. So all doesn't mean all, all of the time, right? That's true in Greek. It's true in English. Sometimes we're talking about a limited all. Um, somebody says, uh, you know, um, do you like running? Oh, yeah, I run all the time. It's not literally all the time. In this case, there is an all, it's speaking of all who are believers in Christ. In Adam, all die means physical descendants of Adam, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. Those are the spiritual descendants of Christ. It doesn't mean that everyone who ever lived. So it is qualified here. And the qualifier is found in the text. It is in Christ. Okay? For as in Adam... All die, but in Christ, so all will be made alive. Those who are in Christ will be made alive. And that, that carries on with um, really Pauline theology, the way Paul talks about death and being in Christ. In verse 18, he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, showing that they are genuine believers. Um, verse 19, we have hoped in Christ. Um, you think of Romans 8.1 which says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means you will never be punished or condemned for your sin if you have genuinely repented of your sin and trusted in Christ as Lord and Master. When Christ erases the film of your life and his film is played before the universe instead of your film and God sees Christ's righteousness, there is no sin that you have committed in the past that will be punished. There is no sin presently going on in your body right now or your soul or your mind or anything that, that will be punished. And sins which you have yet to commit that you don't know about, none of them will be punished. There will be no punitive measures taken towards that sin because Christ has already paid for those sins on the cross in full. And so if you have to pay for them now and Christ paid for them, it somehow is implying that Christ's payment wasn't sufficient or that there needs to be double payment, and that is simply not the case. So that's the good news, that if you're a sinner and you have no hope in your own self-righteousness because even the good things that you do are tainted with sin, right? And so once you have repented and trusted in Christ who lived a perfect life, never sinned, Therefore, he didn't have to die, yet he allowed himself to die as a substitute, as a sacrifice for those who would trust in him. And if you have trusted in his righteousness instead of your own, then his righteousness, that faith is deemed credited as righteousness to you. And that faith has hope because Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the good news. That's the good news. And so we have this idea of... Uh, where we see the implication of resurrection. The implication is that there will be more. There will be more resurrections. Uh, any questions about that before we move on to this next section? Yes?
Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's talk about one sin. You're a believer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right, let, let me try and answer let me try and answer your question. I think you know where you're going with this. If not, you can follow back with me, okay? Let me tell you, okay, let me give you an illustration. So let's say you're at church one evening, there's an evening service, the doors are open, a guy from the street who's a pickpocket, he's a career thief, and he comes in, he sits in the back of the church, he hears the message, he comes forward, and let's say he genuinely afterwards is talking to some people, genuinely repents of his sin and becomes a Christian. Let's say he genu- genuinely is saved. All right? He, he cries out to God, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I've been trusting in my own righteousness. I, I know I'm a sinner. I need help. I need a savior. I, I want you to be my Lord and my master. Okay? And he genuinely becomes a Christian. Okay? By giving his life to Christ. And you're rejoicing. You're praying. You're praising God. You welcome him. You give him your phone number and stuff. Call me if you need help. And, you know, so then uh, you're walking out of the church and uh, you're walking in front of him, and your wallet is hanging out of your pocket just like halfway. And he's tempted because this is his whole life, right? And he's like, this is going to be the easiest take I've ever had. I shouldn't do it because I just gave my life to Christ. But maybe, Lord, just one last time. I'll just do it one last time, I, you know. And he takes it, puts it in his pocket, runs across the street, gets hit by a bus, and is dead. Okay, it's a made-up story. So, okay, so, so, so he's dead, all right? You rush out. You say, who was this guy? I didn't even get his name. You, you look in, you find your wallet in his jacket pocket. All right? Heaven or hell, where does he go? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. This is the good news. He is straight to glory, straight to heaven. We said he genuinely gave his life to Christ. Okay? So he will never be condemned for that sin because Christ has already paid for it. But I think we don't like that because we're like, well, he did get hit by a bus. But, um, but I think... <laughs> so, so let me clarify this and see. There's always consequence for sin, all right? And God disciplines those whom he loves. And sometimes, in fact, sin is never worth it. And it's a lie to think that I can just go on sinning because I'm just all forgiven. And so God, if you are truly his, uh, Hebrews 12 says that he will discipline you. And his chastisement is not pleasant. And when you sin and don't get disciplined immediately and you think, that was kind of worth it, don't think it. It's a lie. It's never worth it. He sees it all. And if you are his, he will discipline you. If you're not feeling his discipline, maybe it's because you're not really his. So there's a difference between dis- discipline which, and, and actual punishment or punitive de- uh, harm uh, for sin. Christ has already paid the punishment. But as a trainer disciplines an athlete, God will discipline. As a father disciplines his children. So uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. 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 Okay, so the question is, uh, because I think that sometimes people, they, they latch on to sort of a, almost a Roman Catholic idea of, of um, 
of repentance, this idea that I need to somehow say these Hail Marys to make it go away, right? Christ has paid the price. From, from God's perspective, from, he looks down at you and sees Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see that. But as far as sanctification goes, he sees you positionally and you have been sanctified, which is why the Bible sometimes talks about sanctification as past tense. But we are being sanctified because as a father, he sees areas in your life that need to be cleansed and changed. As a judge, he sees you pure and holy. As a father, he sees areas that need to be worked on, so he will discipline you so that you'll, he'll work on that. And so, therefore, we are, when we confess our sins, it says in James 5.16, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual, effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is in the context of somebody who's sick. And uh, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, from James 5, that sometimes sickness is related to uh, sin. God uses illness sometimes uh, because of sin. Now, not everybody who's sick is directly related to a specific sin. So don't be like Job's friends and say, <laughs> we, we know why you're, oh, you got a runny nose? I saw that one coming. Um, you know, right? But if you're ill, if you're struggling, if there's a trial in your life, it's a good time for you personally to say, Lord, show me any sin in my life that needs to be uh, examined or dealt with. I want to deal with it. And confession of sin is something that we are we're commanded to. In John chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples, and just, just turn with me there quickly, because I think this is, this, this, there is a need for daily cleansing, Remember in John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and Peter will have none of it, right? And uh, we talk about another reversal. So verse 8, Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. That's kind of an all-inclusive ultimatum, right? Never, right? Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part in me. Peter rethinks it. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Okay, all right, if, 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 if water makes me a part of you, let's, let's take a bath. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are not clean, but you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him, that's Judas, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So what does the foot washing teach us? This teaches us the need for daily cleansing, and he talks about the fact that those who are saved, not including Judas, he knew he wasn't clean, they are clean, and yet we walk around in the filth of this world, and our feet get dirty, and so there is a need for daily cleansing, not having to do with salvation, but having to do with sanctification and living a a right relationship with God, sanctification being set apart from God, not involved in the filth of this world. Okay, it's a good question. I'm glad. I want to clarify these. We're going to go on. Okay, um, verse, verses 23 through 28, we've already seen the implication of resurrection. Now we're see the order of resurrection. The order of resurrection begins in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. This tells us that we shouldn't expect uh, both resurrection to happen at the same time. We, the resurrections don't all happen at once, just like a field comes in stages, there will be different stages of resurrection. And so the order, we're in order here also, um, or sometimes versions say we'll turn, each in turn. It's from a Greek word that, really, that originally referred to a detachment of um, military soldiers. So uh, militaries would fight armies, and they, would, they wouldn't send the whole army at once. It's in one detachment. And then, okay, now you guys go, and now you guys go and reinforce and reinforce. And that same word is used here. So there will be different resurrections. And um, we have uh, three different resurrections in verses 23 through 28 in this order. We have Christ's resurrection, we have the church's resurrection, and we have the completion of resurrection. And so, first of all, let's look at at Christ's resurrection. Christ is the first fruit. And we already talked about that. We talked about the fact that he is the one who 
uh, and we know, when did he rise from the grave? 2,000 years ago, all right? Um, so what about the church's resurrection? The church's resurrection. And I think um, um, to help us understand this, I, I, I put together, okay, I know this is a little, this is totally not Grace Church, but uh, it's okay not to be Grace Church. We are Grace Church, but we're, uh, it's a Sunday school class, right? So I, I, I put together I, uh, like a living illustration because I wanted to think through um, kind of like a timeline of future events, since we're talking about that, get that clear in our mind, and then try and read our text fitting into where that is. So we're going to do a little bit of a, a participation thing. I need your help, and I'm going to get 12 volunteers, and I've already volunteered them from the, the track team, from the cross-country team, because I don't know why, but they were just running through my mind this morning. But um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so um, when we're... <laughs> When we're thinking about uh, uh, future events, I'm, I'm going to have you guys help me with this. So everybody turn your Bible to the book of, Resurre- uh, Resurrection, book of Revelation. <laughs> the book of Resurrection, we're in chapter 15. You keep your fingers there in, in 1 Corinthians 15. The book of Revelation, and, uh, and I'm going to give you chapters. You guys tell me what they're about. And we're going to try and build an eschatology based off the order of events as they were revealed to the Apostle John, okay? So here we go. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter, chapters 1 through 3. What are those about? Seven churches. So it's talking about churches, messages to churches, right? So let's get a church. Okay, so uh, we'll get um, Brent. Brent, where's Brent? Come on up here. I want to call your name, and then Andrew, and then Jack, and then Jack W., and then Joel, and then Ryan, and then Davis. Let's try this. Okay. So, uh, Brent, you're going to be an Old Testament saint, so you get way down to the end, and you're already dead, okay? (laughs) All right? And Andrew, uh, you're a believer, Okay, so you get down next to him. Good, all right, yes. Okay, Jack, you're an unbeliever. All right, you get next to him. You're not, you you might be in the church, you might be outside of the church, but okay. And then uh, Jack W., you're also a believer. Okay, Uh, Joel, you're an unbeliever. Hold on, hold this side. Don't flip that over yet, okay? Because something happens to you later. All right, okay, here we go. All right, okay. Ryan, you're also an unbeliever, okay, for now, all right? And then uh, Davis, you're just a plain old unbeliever. And all right, so, so what we have here is this represents like kind of the, the, the churches in the world. You see the believers? So the believers, you can get together. Uh, old Testament saint, you just need to like kneel down or something. You're, you're dead. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right, all right. Okay. All right. Um, and now we've got uh, Revelation chapters four and five. What happens there? Revelation chapter four. What, just describe me what's happening. Throne room of God. Okay. Where's that worship? Worship where? Yeah, there we go. Worship in heaven. Okay, so uh, worship in heaven is going to be, uh, oh, did I give somebody? Daniel. Yeah, Daniel Rush. Come on. All right, here we go. Okay, you're going to be worship in heaven. So you are worship in heaven. All right, that's, you're not a person, you're uh, an event. Okay? (laughs) All right? And then Anthony. Oh, so sorry. Uh, The next one, Revelation 6 through 19. Lots of chapters on this. Anthony, you can come up. It's the tribulation. It's the great tribulation. Okay? Anthony, you are the great tribulation. All right? So, again, we're just going in the order that the that book of Revelation lists it. Okay? And then we have, uh, after that, we have the millennium. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Revelation 20, 1 through 10. Yeah, Eli, come on up here. 
And then Revelation 20, verses 11 through, 13, 11 through 15. Great white throne judgment. Dominic, you're the great white throne judgment. Wow, we've got some brothers here that are pretty, pretty scary. Okay, all right. There we go. All right. And then Revelation 21 and 22. All right, Wes, come on up here. You're going to be uh, eternity future, new heaven, new earth. All right? Okay. You guys spread out a little while, a little bit here. You, you Keep it up high. Keep it up high. I'm, oh, no, you're, no, you're sorry. There we go. All right. So you're nice and high. Worship in heaven, great tribulation. So you're only seven years. You're a 1,000 years. So you guys scoot down a little bit more. Okay? Great wine throw judgment and eternity future. Okay. All right. So what happens here is that we have uh, all these people, and then um, uh, this is before the rapture. The rapture will, will, will happen with worship in heaven, okay? So what happens at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So, uh, Andrew, you, you die, okay? You're dead before the rapture, I'm sorry, okay? But the good news is we don't mourn like the unbelievers, like pagans, because there's hope for him, okay? And then we have uh, the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, where there's worship in heaven, and on that day, the dead in Christ will arise first. So, Andrew... You're, you're resurrected, and you're, your soul was already in heaven, but now your body comes up, and boom, your grave is empty, and you're worshiping in heaven, okay? And the other believers can come and worship in heaven as well. Just one other believer. We have a small church today. All right? Okay? What about the old saint guy? He's kind of a question. Now, Matthew 27 says that, that some of them during the resurrection appeared around Jerusalem. I, I'm not sure, but I, I think I'll put them somewhere else. So um, we have uh, after. So uh, now at this time, okay, the church age is over. So all the unbelievers who are left, they come into the tribulation. You guys are worshiping in heaven. And then... And then, so you guys get around Daniel over there, okay? So now here's seven terrible years. You want to read about them in the book of Revelation? Read 6 through 19, and bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth. And, and um, what happens, though, is that some of them uh, die uh, during the Great Tribulation. All right, you can die. You can stay, stay alive. All right? And let's say uh, some people... In fact, thousands of Jews will get saved, you know, 144,000 of them. But maybe there'll be other people who saw witnesses and they get saved. So some of the unbelievers become tribulation saints. They're not Christians. We don't call them Christians because they came to faith in the tribulation. And so they're not part of the church. The church is already in, with the Lord in heaven. So they are they're tribulation saints. Okay, and we have some unbelievers who still are, are alive. And then tribulation is over at... Uh, the, the tribulation is over at the beginning of the millennium, and Christ comes down on a white horse, okay, uh, with the saints from heaven. So you can be Christ now, worship in heaven. You just, there's, I didn't want to put Christ in there because I didn't want to. Okay, but anyway, so you guys can gallop over here. Go ahead, gallop, gallop over here to the millennium. Okay, there we go. And, um, and uh, let's say that you died during the tribulation because he's preaching Christ so much he gets killed, okay? But uh, so you enter into the tribulation as a believer, okay? Armageddon happens at the beginning of the, tri- uh, sorry, in millennium. You enter into the millennium as a believer. Armageddon, where Christ comes down and the huge battle in Megiddo happens at the beginning of the millennium. So you got, you got you're slayed, you're dead, right here by Christ, so you now you're dead, okay? And you're over, okay? But you can stay there, all right? Okay? And what we have here is we have um, 
Just think about this, um, the end of the tribulation we have. Then I saw the thrones, they sat on them, and the judgments were given to them. And I saw the souls, this is Revelation 24, of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on his forehead or their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So I think that at the beginning of the millennium, the Old Testament saints also uh, will come. That's from Isaiah 25 and Daniel 12.2. In Daniel 12.2, it says, uh, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So Old Testament saints resurrected and are there with believers in the millennium. Okay, come on over. Okay, you know, you're not on a horse. You just, yeah, I don't know how you get there. Uh, and, then, and then we have, um, we have also... I think because of Revelation 24, we have the tribulation saints who died during the tribulation. 20 verse 4. 20, sorry, 20 verse 4. Th- thank you, dear. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you. Yep. No, it's just the next exit that we're getting off on. Okay. All right, stand up. Okay. So you're resurrected. You're here. All right. Okay. And then uh, who's left here? Okay, so then we have the great white throne judgment. Now, you guys aren't at the, you do not judge at the great white throne. It's a judgment uh, where, so during this time, it's a thousand years. Some of you, one of you just walked in here, didn't you? Some of these, you did? Did you die? You, just, you survived the tribulation and you became part of the millennium. I'm Old Testament. Oh, man, what, who are you? Sorry. Who's that? Yeah, so you, you walked in here, all right? So here is a human who could be alive today, misses the rapture, comes to faith in Christ during the tribulation, survives the tribulation, has never died, enters into the millennial kingdom, is worshiping Christ, Christ is reigning. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Maybe he meets a lady, right? Who has, yes, maybe, who, who has the same, uh, the same story, they have kids. Now, maybe their kids get saved. Maybe they don't get saved. So after a 1,000 years, we could have a, a little rebellion at the end, and that's where Satan is released for a short time. Christ quells, quells that rebellion, and then there's the great white throne judgment. All the unbelievers who never believed come over to the great white throne judgment. So, yep, and you're resurrected at this time for the great white throne judgment. So everybody gets resurrected, some to the judgment. All right? You guys have already had your own judgment, the Bema Seat judgment, uh, 2 Corinthians as well, and so that, that's this idea that you are getting rewards. Okay? And uh, after the great white throne judgment, the millennium is over, and all of those who are believers, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, m- millennium survivors, or you know, nobody comes... Well, maybe, maybe there are some kids who come to faith in Christ during that. We don't know, and this, here's, here's another thing that's kind of bizarre to think about. We don't know what happens to people who die in the millennium. If you're a believer and you die, it's very possible you're immediately resurrected because you're re- reigning with Christ. So the funeral is like that. I mean, it's like he died, boom, he's up. Oh, we don't need to have a funeral. He was a believer. And you would think that would cause everybody to become a believer, but our hearts are so hard that some don't become believers. They want to be a part of the rebellion. And so all the believers, though, enter into eternity, future, new heaven and new earth. So everybody go all the way down there uh, if you're a believer. Okay? All right. So, so that is the story of, of eternity, future, as laid out in the book of Revelation and trying to put people and how they entered and where they're at. Um, You guys can sit down. Give him a hand. Thank you guys for helping. You guys can keep those. It's my gift to you. Um, Unbeliever. Yep, you can. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's point is not to give us a complete picture of everything that happens in the future, but the book of Revelation does give us a picture of everything that happens in the future, and that's what we just laid out before you. And now thinking about that, we have these these three events that happen in the order. There's Christ's resurrection, which happened at the ushering in of the church age, right, 2,000 years ago. And then there will be the resurrection of those in 1 Thessalonians 4 who are believers, the dead in Christ will arise first, and those who are alive will be caught up in the air. So your resurrected body never dies. It just immediately goes up with the Lord and becomes a resurrected body in heaven while you're worshiping in heaven, okay? And then you have, um, after that, you have the completion of all resurrections, verses 24 to 28. So let's read this and see if it makes sense to us. Verse 24, then comes the end. First of all, the end there doesn't mean the end of all time, all right? The word end there is telos in the Greek, Greek and we get the word telescope from it. And so it, it, it means, um, uh, it has this idea of completion, consummation, culmination. A telescope looks all the way, this is where we're going. So when he says the end, he's talking about the end of human history, the end of to where the the final judgment will be, okay? And then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So, and the word then in verse 24 doesn't mean immediately after, it's just saying some unspecified time. So, um, we have these future events, um, and it says in verse 24, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and to God the Father. So, there will be a time in the future where Christ, who received the kingdom as a bride from his father, takes the same kingdom and lays it at his father's feet and gives it back to the father. And when is that? When he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. When is that? That's happening at the end of the millennium at the great white throne judgment. That's when all rule and all authority besides Christ's authority is abolished and placed under his feet, which is a very kingly statement about rule and authority. And then it says in verse uh, um, 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Revelation uh, 21, 22 again. Death is gone because the grave has given up all of the dead, either to be judged for eternal punishment or to be rewarded with God for all eternity, future eternity. And so um, death is no more. No one is dead and no one will die. And then verse, and there's a quote there in verse 27 from Psalm 8. And then middle of verse 27 says, but when he has, when he says all things are put in subjection, okay, remember all doesn't mean all, all the time. He's not saying that God is underneath Christ. That's what Paul's point is here. When he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted. The exception there is God. God doesn't be, isn't put at Christ's feet. He is a ruler and authority, but he's not under Christ's feet. Because it's God who put all things in subjection to him, that is Christ. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So somehow in the Trinity, the resurrected Christ, which forevermore, and how is it that in eternity past, God, who is one being with three persons, came up with a plan that, the, that one member of the Trinity would accept the role of a servant, of a son, and would be incarnated here on earth and laid aside all of those godly attributes for a time and yet took a role serving the Father and knowing that somehow he would do that and maintain that role for eternity future as he is the son, though he is in essence also God. So that's the story. The story is not a story of salvation. 
Salvation is a byproduct of the story. The story is not about you. The story is about God. And, and somehow, God is so great that he devised a way to bring more glory on his own name by designating that the Son would be a sacrifice for sinners who would be made pure and holy and then worship and glorify God for his mercy and grace. That's what we learn here. And that's why it closes with the one who stretched all things to him so that God may be all and all in all. It's an all-inclusive statement talking about the, the dominance, the glorification, the beauty of Yahweh. Okay, we have nine minutes. Yes, question. Yes, yes. Uh, the question is, what does it mean that Christ will be subjected to him? Could I flesh that out? Is your question about eternal functional subordination? Okay, thank you. Uh, for those of you who are aware of a current theological debate, my answer for that is this. Eternal functional subordination does not exist because eternity includes eternity past and eternity future. And so Christ, I do not believe that you can find in Scripture anywhere where it says he has been subordinate to the Father in any way or means from eternity past. But ever since the incarnation, because we have a resurrected Christ who remains in a resurrected body for all eternity future, I believe in an everlasting functional subordination, not an eternal functional subordination. Good, good. Yeah, I, you hear about this debate, and I know that some of you are, are not, uh, they're like, what? But uh, uh, this, this, is, uh, this is a debate going on on the internet since, and actually it started in 2016 at a conference uh, on marriage of all things, uh, because it was it, it was talked about Ephesians five and the um, the fact that uh, Christ is an example of the head of the church and the Father is the head of Christ. First Corinthians, and so if Christ, so the question is headship is an eternal truth. And it got into uh, kind of a, uh, bringing up some old doctrines that were even dealt with in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. So, so it's, it's, it's on the blogosphere. There are, there are those who are for it and against it. I don't understand it. I don't see it from eternity past. I'm not going to argue with it for eternity future because Christ as son, this passage seems to indicate that he somehow takes that role and serves that role for all eternity future. Yes. Yes. Is it about eternal functional subordination? Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's good. So turn to John 17. Uh, the question is, Jesus prayed in the garden that he wanted to be glorified with um, the Father. This is beautiful. This is a great place for us to wrap things up. Uh, John seventeen five. this is the high priestly prayer. This is Christ praying for the church. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I, get, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those you have given me, for they are yours. And all things are mine and yours, and yours are mine, and I, and I have been glorified in them. Um, so when we look at this future glorification, what, what he's praying, 
God, Jesus gave up the presence of Almighty God in heaven when he took the form of a man in humility. And so there were certain things he didn't enjoy, which he used to enjoy. And that worship in heaven, so Christ is with the Father now, he's enjoying that glory, and those who are with him in spirit are enjoying that glory, and that's what we hold on to, and, and, and we can't imagine how great that would be, but we also can't imagine how difficult that was for our Father, for, our son, for God the Father and for God the Son to remove himself from that and come down here and do what was necessary according to God's plan in order to satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so that, is, that was Christ's prayer. And so that eternity future and that, I mean, the words that John describes, the sun, the moon, and the stars don't exist anymore, and Christ is the light, and it, it's this world we can't understand, but there's something that will be so great about it that we will never get tired of it, and that it will be glory and glory and glory, and we can't imagine how good it is. It's so good, though, that Romans 8.18 says that the sufferings of this present time can't be compared to it. So it's it, because we can think of the worst thing imaginable that can happen to us, we can't imagine the best thing that could happen to us, which is to be in the glory of God. Yeah, that's a good question. One question, if we have any, just a couple minutes left. Yes, Mike. So Jesus is God. Right, I don't understand the Trinity in, a, in all of its, its all of its dynamics. But Jesus is God. Isaiah forty tells has a quote about Yahweh that's quoted in Matthew chapter one, verse three and four, and that that attributes Yahweh to Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. So, and the fact that God never changes doesn't mean that He doesn't do different things at different times. Okay, his immutability means that his character never changes, but he reveals himself in different ways and at different times. Doesn't mean he always does the same thing in the same way. All right. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for uh, just the the joy it is to study your Word, and thank you for the challenge that it is, and thank you for helping us to understand it maybe a little better today. And I pray, Lord, that this would bring joy and comfort and peace to those of us who have truly repented and trusted in you, and that we would be focused not on the troubles of this world in the sense that they bring us down, but our joy might come from a future resurrection hope that we have that the world does not have. And we pray for those who do not have that, that they would repent and turn and trust in you. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.